Hello, welcome to this conference session on the civil service in 2023 and beyond. 2022 was a difficult year for the civil service. Partygate, elastic and perhaps broken ethical standards, pay and workforce disputes, increased staff churn and a backdrop of ministerial paralysis as prime ministers fell, rose and fell again. But there were also successes. The response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been widely seen as strong and the organisation of the Queen's funeral smooth and effective. So I think we can uh, assume that 2023 will also not be a particularly easy year for the civil service. Externally, in terms of the problems that uh, they will be helping ministers manage, public services in trouble, strikes and inflation, but also internally with many of those same factors affecting the civil service workforce itself. So we'll talk this morning about what 2023 will actually bring and whether it's time for the civil service to regroup, to reform or to reset altogether. My name is Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director here at the Institute for Government. And cards on the table, one of the things we have been arguing over the last year is there is a need for urgent reform of the civil service. Our view is that it's time for a new civil service statute to underpin the institution and to far more clearly set out a sphere of responsibility for civil servants, which we think would strengthen the civil service's ability to do its job, to give the head of the civil service and permanent secretaries the authority to run their departments and to set out clear standards for how ministers' priorities should be enacted. Being clearer about those responsibilities would, we think, also open up civil service accountability to, to parliament and to the public. So we may touch on that, and we've got a fantastic panel to talk about all of this. Before I introduce them, it's going to be the first of a number of calls for questions. Uh, get thinking in the room here. Uh, you've been well warmed up already. And for those tuning in remotely, use Slido to uh, uh, use the Slido function on your screens. And uh, when you ask a question, if you can, say uh, who you are and what organisation you're from. Uh, uh, as before, we're live tweeting from at IFG events, and the hashtag is IFGGovernment23. So please do follow and tweet along. To introduce the panel, Antonia Romeo is the Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Justice. Before that, she was Permanent Secretary at the Department for International Trade. Um, she's, I'm not sure how you feel about this, Antonia, but a civil service millennial joining in 2000 uh, and has worked as Consul General in New York, Head of the Economic and Domestic Secretariat in the Cabinet Office and a wide range of other uh, senior jobs in the MOJ and elsewhere. Munira Mirza is Chief Executive of Civic Future, which is a new organisation to develop talent in public life. She was head of the number 10 policy unit under Boris Johnson and also worked for him as Deputy Mayor of London for Education and Culture. And Stephen Bush is an associate editor uh, and columnist at the Financial Times, um, writes must-read columns and the newsletter Inside Politics, and regularly graces our screens and radios with insights about the state of politics uh, and government and films and culture. But before we come to the questions to the panel, um, we thought uh, we'd give you a little bonus, which is that we have our annual, uh, our annual IFG publication Whitehall Monitor coming out in a couple of weeks. So uh, to give you a quick sneak preview of that, we thought would give us a bit of context about the state of the civil service as we start 2023. So my colleague Rhys Klein, who's a senior researcher in the civil service team here at the IFG, will just for a couple of minutes take us through a few charts to get things going. Uh, over to you, Rhys. Thank you very much, Alex. So, the first chart on screen. Possibly. There we go. Uh, so as Hannah teed up this morning, this year's Whitehall Monitor charts the impact of the political turmoil of last year on the work of the civil service and on the effective running of government. We know the context, 37 ministerial resignations outside of reshuffles, 54 cabinet appointments uh, in 2022, more than double any year since at least the 1970s. 
And on some issues, the Johnson Trust and Sunak administrations took different views. On others, the, the process of dealing with resignations, waiting for new ministers and inducting them meant policies got stuck. And then whether on uh, social care, planning, onshore wind, health inequalities, online harms or more, we've seen delay and U-turns. <laughs> and that is useful context for thinking about the two big challenges that we identify for civil service leaders going into 2023. The first is managing the workforce at a particularly difficult time. Morale is getting worse, has been for the past two years, and we know that dissatisfaction with pay is one factor fueling that morale. Real terms pay has fallen starkly last year, and since 2010, it's been cut by between 12% at the most junior grades and 23% at the most senior. Industrial action over the winter in several departments has shown the difficulty that this record on pay will make pay restraint in the near future. Poor morale is also one of several factors fueling record high levels of churn in the civil service. 14% of officials uh, moved between departments or left the service last year, the highest level of turnover in at least a decade. This is partly pent-up demand releasing after the pandemic. It's partly departments unwinding temporary roles built during the pandemic, but it's also a consequence of dissatisfaction. The second big challenge that we identify for civil service leaders going into 2023 is the difficulty they'll have managing departmental budgets, particularly after this financial year. The relatively generous allocations of the 2021 spending review were heavily front-loaded on this financial year and have since been squeezed by cost pressures, particularly on pay. Departments will find, in general, there is no new money beyond this year. And the situation is particularly tough for administration budgets, those used to pay civil servants resource assets and operations. They are already lower than they were a decade ago, and they're set to be cut by another 8% over the next uh, two years. Within those are an implied plans for a 25% uh, cut in pay bill, pay bill budgets, which is even more striking. Even if this is amended at the spring budget, it will leave departments with really difficult decisions on how to spend less on the civil service with implications for headcount, pay, and property, and more. It's not all doom and gloom, though. Um, we found progress has been made in, in some efforts to reform the civil service. For example, relocating officials outside of London, which government is starting to turn the tide on that increasing concentration of the civil service in the capital. And also on the development of the training offer available for civil servants and the growth of certain high priority skills among the workforce, such as those relating to digital data and technology. But perhaps inevitably, given the political context, momentum, as Hannah spoke about this morning, has been lost from the government reform agenda, which makes it all the more important that that reform is revived this year. And uh, we go into all of that and more in our full report out at the end of the month. So please keep your eye out. Thank you very much, Rhys. Um, very useful bit of uh, context uh, there. So, um, I mean, I'll start, Antonio, with uh, you, uh, with the sort of context from the civil service perspective. Uh, what, as one of those permanent secretaries uh, sitting at the top of the department, are your priorities for um, the civil service in 2023? Yeah. Um, well, look, the first thing to say is thanks for having me on the panel. A really important issue all the time, but perhaps never more so than now, given all the global and economic challenges we face, as just set out in the previous uh, panel. So the Prime Minister has been clear that he wants to put integrity, accountability and professionalism at the heart of the government, and that includes the civil service. So in the context of that, the Cabinet Secretary and the Perm Sex are very focused on making the civil service more skilled, ambitious and innovative. 
and all the work that we've set out and we're delivering already in the context of the uh, Declaration of Government Reform is essentially uh, under that, about becoming more data-driven, more digital, getting better and pacier at delivery and iterating that delivery uh, with policy, uh, being more representative of the people we serve, including geographically, so getting more uh, out of London, um, and ventilating better and learning from the private sector. Um, so, you know, there's much done, much, much more to do. Um, I think the final thing I would say is the past few years, I mean, you mentioned uh, and your uh, slide set out some of it. Obviously, there's been a period of significant change, um, what with Brexit, COVID, the war in Ukraine. The, the civil service has, I think, responded um, you know, well, we think responded well to in a number of areas, but particularly in becoming very innovative about some of the ways, some of the policy responses to that, some of the delivery responses on those issues. So the, I think the question for us in the context of civil service reform is how to harness that creativity and innovation in order to you know, do that all the time, perhaps in a more stable environment going forward. And if you, could, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the civil service, what would it be? Well, I guess I'll stick with innovation. So, you know, if, if we think about how the, some of the things that happened, I mean, on the war in Ukraine, the sanctions policy development, or in COVID, the response to, you know, scaling up universal credit, the support to... Um, individuals and businesses, um, a, a large number of policy responses and then delivery of those quickly and speedily, I think was, uh, you know, we, the CAMSEC and the PERMSEC, think about the civil service at its best during that. So the question is, how can we harness that to get better at, at being innovative all the time? One of the challenges is we work with taxpayers' money. And so there's a, and there's a cost to failure. And the flip side of innovation is failure. We have to be very careful about that. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the Cabinet Secretary talks about the, uh, the risk of missed opportunity. So if we're not more innovative, if we're not focusing all the time, bringing multidisciplinary teams together, uh, getting better at that kind of process to, to be more innovative, we will miss some of those opportunities. And that's partly process, and of course, it's partly mm. mindset, which is perhaps where the magic wand comes in. Thanks, Antonio. Uh, Stephen, to, to you next. I mean, permanent secretaries, the civil service as a whole, perhaps the country as a whole, emerged kind of blinking from this uh, Johnson Truss uh, period. And we've got more of a sense of stability now, but also perhaps as we were talking about uh, in an earlier panel, uh, of government paralysis. And the risk is that, um, as we've been saying today, that 2023 is a kind of wasted year. What, what do you think, from your perspective, that means for the civil service in particular? Well, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why there's more stability now is that the structure has decided to stop moving because it worries, and if it moves, things will fall mm. off and, uh, and, you know, the government will collapse. Uh, from a civil service perspective, um, in some ways, that makes it a, a good year to focus on improving the sort of the institution as a whole, because it is unlikely that there's going to be a particularly complex public policy undertaking. Now, there are still some quite thorny and difficult bits of, yeah, particularly legislative challenges like the online mm -hmm. arms bill, which is a very difficult bit of legislation, and whatever emerges from this Section 35 process will be uh, a difficult bit of legislation, just in terms of actually, you know, implementing it, making sure it works, all that kind of thing. Um, the problem, though, is one of the reasons why the government has, is, has, is drifting and paralysed is that we expect there will be a change of government at the next election. Now, that might not happen, of course, uh, but one of the persistent problems in civil service reform and indeed 
reform of government structures in general is the problem of things not being made here. So in some ways, I think it's actually not perhaps the best time. I'm aware that saying this IFG panel is a bit like, I know, turning up in the deep south and going, I love Barack Hussein Obama. But, um, but um, in some ways, I think it's possibly not the best time to do civil service reform, simply because um, we know that new governments have a tendency of going, oh, well, that can't have worked. And we see this, right? Downing Street structure is a really good example of this. Governments, time after time after time, realize, oh, actually, it's a good idea to have a delivery unit and a policy unit. Um, and so I think, in some ways, this is probably good thinking time rather than good reforming time. So what would your advice, picking up on that theme, what would your advice be to the Labour Party in terms of thinking about the civil service that it wants to uh, potentially inherit? So I think the things they should be thinking about are, one, what are the... Yeah, partly because the good thing about having been government, out of government for so long is that they start to get misty-eyed about it. It's basically to think about what are the things they believe the civil service uh, will be able to do for them that they can't do now. Yeah. Obviously, implement policy. But like, what, what's the know-how they believe that the institution has? What's the ideal work? Yeah, kind of think, about, think about it from a kind of shining city on a hill perspective. And also, to say something slightly more IFG-friendly, um, to read lots including lots of IFG reports, to think about what they would put in a civil service statute, to try and think a bit about uh, the crisis of the day from a sort of first principles perspective. So if, if we think about this constitutional showdown that's uh, happening between the, the Scottish and British governments, well, that is also partially a civil service story. I urge any of you to, to look through uh, Hansard, through the process of the GRR bill through the Scottish Parliament, and compare it to the standard of uh, legislative scrutiny and due attention that you would expect any bill uh, to receive uh, in the Westminster Parliament. And whatever you think about the policy aim, uh, I think you would be taken aback at the quality of, or lack thereof of the legislative scrutiny. And one of the ways to slightly de-problematise these confrontations between uh, the devolved governments is to start thinking about, OK, what is the principle of what I would like you know, forget the policy for a moment. What is the principle of what good implementation looks like? Um, mm. And I think that helpfully guides a reform agenda for an incoming government. Yeah, that's really interesting, which does link in some ways to the kind of, you know, clearer responsibilities for the civil service to then help the government to, uh, to, to do what it says it wants to do. Um, Manira, you've worked up close with uh, civil servants. You were in number 10 when there was an infamous hard rain falling um, on, the, on the civil service and uh, uh, permanent secretaries were being dispatched. Um, what's... What's your take on the strengths and weaknesses of the civil service? Uh, so, first of all, thanks for inviting me to speak. Um, I, I had the immense privilege of working with some really excellent people in government, uh, both on the civil service side and the political side. Um, I think there are many, many good people across the whole of Whitehall and certainly the wider civil service uh, nationally. Um, and, and often many of them working uh, despite the bureaucracy and the processes and, and the things that I think everyone who works in the civil service recognises. So uh, there's a there's kind of individual talent, uh, which I think there is there, uh, there is considerable stock of, and then there is the broader system and the problem. Um, I used to think about civil service reform um, a bit like the way I think about Muesli, which is, is very worthy and wholesome, but actually not that interesting. Um, I've, I've changed my mind um, uh, over the years, and I think the reason is that we don't, uh, it's one of the reasons I set up this, this new venture, Civic Future. Um, I don't think we uh, prize talent enough. I don't think we focus on it mm. enough. 
Uh, if you talk to people in any other sector, in business, uh, in the tech world and so on, the, the CEOs spend a lot of time thinking about great people at the top of their organization. They, they, you know, they spend a lot of time headhunting, recruiting. You know, they say, uh, and they said this to me, you know, I, I, the, the, the decisions we make as a company are as only as good as the people at the top of the company. You know, nobody in politics or the civil service that I've heard or I've spoken to have, have really talked in that way. Uh, so there's a sort of, there's a focus on um, broader systems, but not necessarily on individuals. And, and, and the word excellence is not one you hear a huge amount of, I would say, in, in the, the policy documents I've seen. I mean, maybe that's changed in the, the, the year that I've been out of government. Um, I think civil service reform um, has, there are two broad categories of problem to solve. The first is the kind of technical fixes, what, what I think of sometimes as the low-hanging fruit, things that actually there's broad agreement on that needs to be done. So, for example, improving training, particularly in areas like data science, uh, uh, technology, bringing more STEM graduates in. Uh, my colleague, Pamela Dow, who was until recently the head of the government campus on skills and training, which she set up, um, have, has had quite considerable success in that area. I think that's very good. That's good movement uh, uh, in the right direction. Um, things like enabling civil servants to stay in their job for longer than two years in order to, you know, uh, uh, develop their career. I think there's a lot of movement. Everyone would recognise that. Um, there's a kind of bureaucracy and risk aversion in the processes and uh, lots of focus on accountability, n not always the right levels of autonomy uh, for, for junior civil servants. So there are certain things which, uh, and there must have been multiple reports uh, on this. Um, I mean, every other week I feel like I'm asked by a think tank to give an interview about civil service reform. And they all come out with very similar conclusions. And I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely clear on why a lot of these actually quite simple fixes are not implemented. I mean, maybe Antonia um, will have better insight. But I feel like that's stuff that you know, everyone can agree on. There's a second category of problem, which I think is broader and is not confined just to the civil service. I think it's a broader political problem. It's a, a problem of, of, of an elite uh, uh, generally in running the country, which is um, the way in which we think about government and the way we think about running the country. So it's already been said that there is uh, a great deal of emphasis on short-term fixes rather than long-term problem solving. Um, as it happens, government can think long-term. It does invest long-term, despite the fiscal constraints. You know, We've got quite considerable physical infrastructure projects going on that will take 20 years to be realized. Um, we don't have the same in social infrastructure as said in the previous panel. Um, but that really comes down to priorities, being able to prioritize what are the things that, that, that will improve the country for the better. And I think that's a political elite issue as much as a kind of civil service issue. Um, I think there's a lot of siloed thinking. So uh, the domestic policy departments uh, are probably less engage with the broader international context than they should be. I think international affairs is now impinging on domestic policies. We've seen the energy crisis uh, in a way which perhaps in previous years had been less thought about. So that, that probably needs to change. Um, I also think there is an issue of opinion diversity. Um, and you know, I don't mean by that very crassly, all civil servants think the same. Clearly not. There's, you know, there are, there's a lot of nuance in that. Um, but it is noticeable, I think, that there are certain areas, certain uh, uh, ways of thinking that tend to dominate. So um, the, the previous panel were talking about childcare and the importance of childcare. Um, and I think it's a very important issue. 
um, particularly for a certain strata of, of, of society, um, it's uh, the thing that makes the difference between working or not. Um, there's been a huge amount of regulation in childcare, actually, and childminding mm -hmm. has just reduced as a sector. It's a private sector, and that's a government-made policy that has had a massive effect. Um, the tendency towards coming up with new ways of codifying, regulating, to try and fix a problem, mm. uh, because something must be done. And I think that sort of tendency is, is something that I've noticed. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come to Antonio on some of those sort of civil service questions in a second, but one thing I wanted to ask, picking up on that, was you know, we talk a lot about uh, failure of long-term policy making and the kind of chronic policy problems as we've been talking about them. Uh, you mentioned a few there. How, how do we get better at uh, solving these chronic policy problems, whether it's FE education or um, child uh, care or um, you know, picking up on some of the pensions or um, obesity and health? You know. So I, I think there's a difference between trying to make the system more efficient and having good people in the system who have delivery expertise and can operationalise whatever the policy is from the top of government. Then there is a separate, I think, intellectual problem, which is where I think the political elite needs to take some responsibility, which is, you know, and I say as I worked in government for three years, so I'm, not, I'm not claiming to have, you know, got it, got it right myself. Um, but being able to prioritise and say, this is the area that is foundational, it's absolutely important that, that we must invest our resources in. We have finite resources in government, we have, you know, certain fiscal constraints. And I would say that that decision-making um, is, is ultimately a political choice. Governments have to make political choices. To govern is to choose. And uh, perhaps it's a, an outworking or a result of broader political uh, instability. You know, what do the political parties represent? Who do they represent? Uh, what does the Conservative Party stand for? Who does the Labour Party stand for? Who, who uh, you know, what's its position on things like planning reform or its position on tax reform? Those are... Those are the sorts of decisions. In, in my experience, the civil service will execute and will deliver when there's a clear set of priorities and questions laid out. What it can't do very effectively is try and you know, deliver two almost contradictory policies at the same time. That would be almost impossible. Yeah. So there's a, I think there's a broader intellectual uh, problem as well. Um, on Antonio, Munira talked about talent there and talked about you know, what it makes to... Be a, be a good civil servant. Um, uh, you know, let's take the sort of you know integrity, objectivity, the, the civil service values as, as read for the, the moment. Or there's an interesting discussion to be uh, had on that. What um, uh, what's what makes a good civil servant, and how do we create more of that in the civil service? Um, okay. Well, so first of all, I agree with. I mean, a lot of as, as you'd expect with a lot of what um, Nero has said. I think it, it's clearly the case that you know since the Fulton report. A lot of the issues, as the IFG have reported, come back again and again about changes that need to be made. I do think it's worth recognising how much progress has been made, while acknowledging, while in no way being complacent and acknowledging uh, the huge amount that's got to be done. I mean, if we look at something, what's happened on professionalisation of the functions, for example, ten years ago, you didn't have to be financially qualified to be a financial director. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we look at what's happened on uh, projects, you know, the um, uh, the major projects authority, the way that they hold to account uh, civil service for delivery 
um, of those projects, the way they give assurance. I think all, you know, commercial, digital, I mean, your, your chart was showing how much we've had some increase in, uh, in some growth in some of those functions. So I think that's all the good, you know, th those are things where we have significantly improved, I think, over recent years. I mean, Manira mentioned the skills campus and skills curriculum. Another great example, 14,000 people went through the induction. This is in one year on what's happened on the... On the um, skills campus and skills curriculum. I mean, that's really significant, and that is going to help skill up as part of the skill, skilled, innovative, ambitious plan uh, for the civil service. So I think that's, you know, all those things really important, becoming more representative of the people we serve, less groupthink, getting out across the country, the commitment to places for growth and moving 22,000 staff out of London by including 50% of the senior civil service, which is quite a significant commitment by 2030. So all of this stuff, um, I think we're, we're trying to be ambitious in terms of um, what we can deliver. I totally agree about the importance of talent. I mean, essentially, we're a people organisation, both in policy development and delivery. Um, I spent Christmas reading 30,000 free text comments in the Ministry of Justice People Survey, and as well as pay, the other most commonly raised issue is career progression. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no doubt that people are very focused on career progression, and we want to be employing the best people because we're in a war for talent with all sectors. We want to be retaining, recruiting and retaining the best people. We can't do it, as you've demonstrated. We don't do it that much on pay. We do it on purpose because it's a massive privilege to do what we do. And it's a privilege to serve the country, to serve the government, and we employ people. No one joins the public sector, really. Few people would for the pay. It's for the purpose and the mission. But alongside that, we've got to create the right, right working conditions and give people the opportunity to develop their careers and to, um, and to have their talent recognised. So I think, to, uh, you know, on your question about what makes a good civil servant, I mean, the values are absolutely like a stick of rock in terms of what we do. Um, the, uh, our commitment to those values, they're pretty much unchanged since Northcott Trevelyan, but that makes them no less important and they're absolutely essential. Um, I think on top of that, I mean, you know, th it's been a tough few years for the civil service. I think if I had to pick a couple of things that make a, a good civil servant, you know, I would say courage and uh, resilience, mm. probably. Two good words. Um, staff churn. Uh, we talk about it lots here. Uh, I think the civil service itself recognises that it's, it's, a, it's a problem. There have been some you know, uh, uh, reforms to, to try and address it, but how do we sort it out? So a lot of... I mean, you had a, the interesting chart that showed a lot of the staff churn. I mean, there is a little bit of a lag that uh, we recognise, which is about uh, a lack of movement um, during the pandemic, and so now we've come out of that a little bit. Of course, churn within departments, and I completely recognise... Um, the, we want expertise and so therefore we need people to stay and we want people to have knowledge on what they're doing and, and one of the commitments in the, uh, uh, the Declaration of Government Reform um, that the Cabinet Secretary and the Perm Secretary are delivering is about ensuring that people do stay for uh, longer in, in crucial roles. But equally, actually, movement, ventilation within the system is also a good thing. I mean, one of the reasons to join uh, the civil service is that you can work on operational delivery and you can work on policy and you can work on uh, you know, a whole range of areas within your career. So internal moves, I think, you know, aren't always bad. It's one of the things that we offer, although we accept um, we've got to be, we've got to get better. And as I say, it's one of the commitments in the declaration uh, key about people staying in jobs for crucial roles, people staying in jobs for longer. Mm. Perhaps a final quick point mm. to make is, of course, the civil service is not just one thing. Yeah. So of the, I mean, 
about 76,000 of my staff were in operational delivery. So, uh, you know, the bulk of the civil service is delivering day in, day out uh, to the citizen direct services. Often when we talk about civil service reform, we can tend to talk about what's happening in the kind of, you know, Whitehall. And indeed, we need to get out more across the country in terms of policy making as well. But it's quite important to think, not think about it as one uh, big, uh, one big organisation which all needs to be subject to the same degree of change, I think. Okay, thank you. I'm going to come to questions in the room in a moment. I just wanted to ask Stephen and online. I just wanted to ask Stephen and Munira um, a question about the centre and number 10 um, uh, uh, from the inside and the outside, uh, if you like. Um, is the centre of British government working, Munira? Uh, so there's often a lot of emphasis on the, I mean, Stephen said this as well, on reorganising staff roles and organograms. I'm, I'm not sure that's really the problem. I think, you know, when you have a, a very clear agenda, a very clear manifesto, you know what you want to deliver, times of relative stability, the system generally works and there isn't a kind of perfect system. It, it's moulded around the individual prime minister. Um, so I would say that you know the dysfunctions that that have emerged or uh, been manifest are more a result of you know lack of clear purpose or clarity over different priorities. I I don't think um, I don't think you know particular constitutional arrangements. I mean maybe your the statute that you're particularly keen on will will deliver that. Um, I think there's a broader issue. It's one of the reasons why we set up Civic Future. Pamela Dow, who's now working with me, I think recognised this as well, um, is that we often don't prepare people for the big challenges that, that government has to face. So um, I think we're probably quite good at, to some extent, the technical micro-training of, of working in government departments, working in Number 10 of the Cabinet Office. But the broader big picture, um, uh, understanding how different areas of, of policy, different issues impacts on each other, that, that is probably less well-developed. Um, and that's the, that's the kind of thing that's often missing, um, I would say, in, in the centre. The centre has to be the sort of intelligent mind that's able to bring things together, and, and sometimes it's, it's not possible. Also, there's just a general, you know, every single day throws up a new crisis that absorbs a huge amount of time. There isn't a really easy way of getting around that. I, I think one, one area which is often undervalued is the special advisor network. Uh, and I know that there are probably some civil servants who resent them and find them slightly irritating because they're you know, buzzing around the system, challenging and asking difficult questions and, and issuing all sorts of requests and orders. But where the special advisor system is, is very helpful is it can try and retain some connection back to the original manifesto and the original pledges of the prime minister. And sometimes you need the grit and the oyster. You need the challenge because, as I say about groupthink, um, sometimes you need someone who says, well, why do we have to do the regulation in that way. Someone who, you know, I, and I think, you know, there should always be an emphasis on politeness and, and dealing with people diplomatically. But sometimes um, it is possible to be in a room with lots of civil servants and nobody will present the opposing point of view. And I think there is sometimes a little bit of uh, nervousness about disagreeing as well, um, where special advisors have a liberty that, that, and I remember in the policy unit, some of the civil servants saying they were slightly envious that special advisors had the freedom to challenge and criticise in a way that they felt that they didn't. So I, I would say the special advisor network is extremely helpful when, when it's staffed with experts, with people who are very committed and very motivated. Um, that's one thing that can actually make the centre work better. Yeah. Thanks. Stephen, same so, to you. So I broadly agree with, 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 with everything Munir has just said. 
But in terms of the earlier point about thinking about wars for talent, now, if you've worked in any private sector organization, you will at some point have gone through this slightly annoying experience where the CEO sees that someone other CEO has some cool thing and then they want it and then you're having a slightly ill-advised US expansion or whatever as a result of the, of the CEO's desire to copy whatever the other CEO is doing. Um, now, broadly speaking, if you imagine that the British Prime Minister were a CEO and they were visiting any of their counterparts in Europe, they would look at Downing Street, they would look at the office of the German Chancellor, they would look at the office of the French President, and they would go, I'm sorry, what, what the hell? Um, so it, it is clearly, I think, underpowered relative to other, other governing centres. And I think that is a bit of a problem, uh, partly because, uh, yes, I think when the Prime Minister of the day has a clear set of policies they want to achieve, and those clear policies don't contradict or cut across each other, then they can sort of blast through that. But I'm a great believer that one of the things good institutions do is that they uh, improve the quality of their replacement level hires, as well as their star hires. Um, and I think you know, Downing Street is underpowered relative mm -hmm. to other structures, and that should change. I just had one thing yeah. which, you know, I don't know if this is a controversial thing to say, but I've spoken to lots of civil servants who will complain that there's poor performance that isn't dealt with properly, and it's very demoralising. Um, and it gives them a sense that people just get moved sideways, um, they get given a good reference, and then they pop up in another department leading some other incredibly important project. Um, I have no scientific data on how big a problem this is, but the fact that so many people will say it sotto voce means to me that that is a, a, a general problem. Now, can the civil service fix that? Um, is there a will to fix that? I think that's quite an important signal. In most companies, there's a recognition that if your team is underperforming somewhere, you should try and do something about it. I think it gets sometimes perhaps hidden or people moved around. Yeah, it does come up a lot in people surveys. I don't know, Antonio, whether you want a quick word on that, or well, now we'll come to the room. I mean, just to say that we, from a permanent secretary point of view, our job is to marshal the resources in order to deliver for the government. So fixing, you know, high performance, create building high-performing departments is what we do, because we deliver for the government of the day, we're accountable to ministers in doing that, and, I mean, obviously, permsecs have particular uh, responsibility to Parliament for stewardship of uh, public finances and resourcing, but ensuring that, though, that we have the best possible people and they're working in the most effective way, and therefore, you know, the, the role that performance um, management plays in that, I think, is absolutely um, essential. So I think it's uh, the will, I would say, is, is definitely there, and I think, again, it's an area where we, I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about and we spend a lot of time at the top of the civil service talking about talent management, and that should happen throughout the civil service. There's obviously a lot, you know, a lot more that, um, that can and, and should mm. be done. Popular question here, Lucy Malloy says, does the, does the, do the panel think that the current system of recruitment and promotion motivates staff? Will the civil service ever implement performance-based promotion and or promotion in post? I mean, by the way, you've got some civil servants in the room. Mm. You know, I'd be interested to know what their uh, views are um, uh, on that, because in a way, it's partly when you're, you're, you're in the system, you'll have a, a, a better view. And actually listening to how uh, colleagues feel about, mm. about the process is, is obviously essential. Um, I mean, obviously, I, there's quite a lot in that, of yeah. course. The question is, um, how, can we, how can we get better? Is, is there something about promoting in post that's the key to that, or is there something about ensuring to the earlier point that we've got a really good performance management system and also a system that can reward people for staying. Mm. And the question is how you do that, particularly in the context of some of the things that were on mm. your charts earlier. 
I keep promising to come to questions. I will now. So uh, uh, Mike should be uh, roving around. Um, let's go to the gentleman there, the lady there, and the gentleman there. So um, green tie, Chris. Uh, if you could say who you are. And Thank you. Chris Smythe from The Times. I just wanted to pick up something uh, Antonio said about innovation and how you get that and risk aversion. I mean, is this an institutional professional thing of the civil service or is it a problem of the wider political uh, and indeed media culture uh, and do, to solve this do we have to be more tolerant of failure as the flip side of innovation and do we have to accept that if we want things that are innovative more things will fail and change the incentives to accept that and tolerate that you know people in the pandemic praise uh, the risk in the vaccine program, but only because everything went right and where they where it went wrong, for example, in PPE procurement, they, people are still complaining about how awful these, these risks taking were. So do we need to change culturally how we think about failure and accept it as the price of innovation? Thank you very much. We'll go to a question directly behind you. Uh, thank you. I'm Grace Duffy from the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Seeing as you said we wanted a view from civil servants. Um, so perhaps it's a bit of a reflection on, um, say, the last year operating in what has been a very challenging and turbulent time, and particularly about the challenges of sort of staffing and recruitment. So of course we've had a staffing freeze and we've had lots of sort of zigzagging of leadership, multiple sort of ministers and secretaries of state and what have you, but the requirement to continue to deliver and develop policy in that time. But when what's actually happened is our staffing numbers have just decreased. I think at one point I was operating with 50% capacity in my team with no ability to recruit, but also no real ability to say back to ministers, well, no, we cannot do this piece of work or we cannot do it to the time that you request. And I think this perhaps, and there's definitely something in here about retaining staff without being able to promote them or indeed reward them financially. So you can do neither at the moment. Um, so it's very, very hard to sort of motivate and retain people under those kinds of circumstances. I mean, I think some of this speaks to the kind of a, a link between why you say, why aren't some of those quick fixes, those things that everybody does agree on? We need to get better at poor, dealing with poor performance. We need to get the better skills balance. I think some of that relates to that disconnect between the ministerial expectation and what the civil service is able to do. Because in order to do that, we will need to divert people away from ministerial policy priorities into dealing with some of these things about civil service reform. And that's just not something that I feel is likely to happen in the near future. So mm -hmm. I think that we need to have that um, sort of deal with that disconnect between what the ministers say, this is our priorities, this is what you must do, and then what the civil service is actually, how we are able to respond to that. Um, and for me, they don't quite match up, and that's why I think there is a frustration both with some ministers, but also with many civil servants about how we're actually able to deliver on what the government wants to do, which is, after all, what we are all there for every day. That's what we want to do. Um, but it can be enormously frustrating. Thanks, Grace. And I said I'd come to the front here, and there will be another round, at least, of questions. Gentleman there. Duncan Hames, Transparency International UK. Uh, last year, eventually, a, a number of uh, ministers uh, felt accountability for, for failings on their watch. And we, we were reminded earlier the Prime Minister's words about integrity, professionalism, and accountability. Uh, from PP procurement to the evacuation of Afghanistan and, and frankly, even Partygate. Uh, Clearly, there are questions for civil servants about all of that as well. Has there been 
serious soul-searching amongst civil service leaders uh, in, in light of these episodes? Or, or is, it, is it only the politicians that will be accountable? Thanks, Duncan. Okay, so uh, sort of three questions there. Innovation uh, and risk-taking, um, uh, sort of context of uh, constrained resources uh, and prioritisation, and then sort of ethics and accountability and soul-searching amongst civil servants as well as uh, ministers. Um, Stephen, do you want to kick us off? I'll come round. Um, right, I mean, look, I, I think we haven't talked enough, actually, about some of those charts. Broadly speaking, like, yes, uh, it, it is right and proper than, than people feel it's a privilege to work in the civil service and are keen to do so. And therefore, I think it is perfectly reasonable to expect in the civil service not be a market leader on pay. But there's a heck of a difference between that chart and being a market leader. Uh, so sort of unsurprisingly, people aren't going to be uh, very motivated. And I think also this, this leads exactly to that very good point about transparency and accountability. And broadly speaking, uh, in any well-run government machinery, you should, and obviously governments as they are never incentivized to do this, but hopefully officials feel able to whistleblow and to resign. And one reason, one way that you can give people that that certainty is if they are better paid, they are more likely to be, feel financially resilient to have a couple of months out, as it were, before they move on to another, to another job, and you're more likely to be able to retain and attract um, talent. So I think, paradoxically, both the transparency and the staff do come down to the, the, the basic problem that you've, you've got to be more competitive on pay and conditions than that chart. Uh, and when you're not, it you know, does create a problem that I don't think there has been a lot of reflection in the civil service about um, recent events. I think there's an awful lot of, uh, when you'll talk to people, they'll go, oh, you know, you don't understand. There was a lot of, and I, look, and I'm not remotely saying that there wasn't a lot, uh, a lot of problems of, you know, bullying and shouting and, and very difficult things to deal with from the political side. But equally, um, many people had very difficult things they had to deal with in 2020 and 2021. And it doesn't feel like, uh, like there has been that wider system-wide reckoning uh, about some of the things that went on and what that means for, for, you know, for the institutions as well as the government of the day. Thanks, Stephen. And Manira, I'll throw in a question to add to Chris's on innovation how, from Anonymous. How can we encourage a culture of greater acceptance of failure and learning from it, which is a necessary component of a more innovative and responsive civil service, particularly in light of an often hostile media environment? So just to amplify Chris's points there, Manira. So, so much to say. Um, I think there are two paradoxes in the civil service. One is um, there's this immense pressure for accountability and uh, a lack of forgiveness over experiments and innovation. Uh, and you know, that's when you get the Kate Bingham situation where she's starting a vaccine program and almost immediately the National Audit Committee swoop in and start demanding lots of information. It's obviously you know, not very constructive when you're trying to get something done. The, the, the um, but the, the paradox is that it's also um, you know, people don't get fired for genuine bad performance. Um, and I don't know if it's that it takes a lot of time or the process is very difficult. I think just people don't like to fire people and the pressure isn't there as it would be perhaps in a small business where everything is much more visible. Um, I'm, you know, obviously feel free to disagree with me on that point, but this is my impression from having talked to civil servants. Um, the second paradox is that um, we've had the rise in HR um, and a rise in a kind of a growth of, um, you know, the sort of well-being industry of, you know, training courses, bring your whole self to work, you know, use pronouns, etc. And yet staff morale is going down and down and down. 
Um, I do wonder if a lot of the, the stuff that passes for staff well-being and management is actually um, not helping, it's possibly making it worse, is becoming a bit of a substitute um, for other, you know, more effective management. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you know, uh, words that you don't hear very often, which I do think give a sense of purpose, is duty, service. These are actually things that do motivate individual civil servants. I mean, obviously, people want to realise their, you know, their personal uh, uh, career and achievements. You know, they are, quite rightly, if you work in the public sector, you shouldn't be sacrificing your career. Um, but I think there is something extra in, in working in the civil service, which is we, we almost don't talk about, um, which is that sense that, you know, working for your country and having purpose is the thing that makes actually some of the kind of the, the kind of pettiness and bureaucracy of the day-to-day -day, uh, things that people you know are, are willing to overcome or willing to live mm. with in order for this 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 bigger sense of mission. Um, and sometimes the, the the stuff that I I remember seeing in the the HR um, people would send out, and I would look at it, and 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 I think a lot of people would have the same reaction, which is it's just slightly patronizing and you feel that it's being done for compliance legal reasons because they can say well we've done this training therefore you know if we get challenged uh, in a work tribunal we, we can say that we dealt with it it doesn't feel like it's a genuine mission-driven mm. approach to, to managing staff there's a theme of risk risk aversion but also accountability running through all those comments uh, Antonia um, so just to say first I mean I we talk about purpose all the time I mean purpose we're massively purpose-led I mean obviously um, in the department, I'm responsible for the Ministry of Justice. We are hugely purpose-led in terms of uh, rehabilitation and life chances and working with victims. But across the civil service, that sense of mission and and a sense that people and in fact the colleague from DLUC um, also uh, referred to this, the reason we do what we do and we acknowledge the privilege we have of, of, of working for the citizen and supporting the government and that is all about um, all about purpose. Um, I think that I mean on this innovation point. So we, we work with taxpayers' money. So in a world where uh, you, know, you could go for 10 moonshots and nine of those moonshots might fail, you've got to be extremely careful if nine of those moonshots um, in failing will be, will be at a cost of the taxpayer. And that, of course, is a constraint. And as, as uh, you know, civil servants, we're responsible for working within the, uh, the constraints um, that we face. But nonetheless, I do think there's a lot we can do to become more innovative, and and um, referred earlier to uh, you know working across silos and joining up between international and domestic policy. So an example, um, after you know in the early uh, moments of the Ukraine war, what happened on energy policy? I mean, this is about bringing together foreign, domestic, geopolitics with what's happening at home, and multidisciplinary teams working together to uh, to develop and deliver. Um, a policy, and that is really where we need to get really good at innovation. It's partly about how we deliver things, but it's also part, so you know being more digital, being more innovative. I mean, a good example in in my world is um, GPS tagging, for example. So now we can uh, identify through GPS tagging uh, where an offender has been, and indeed whether or not they've been at the scene of the crime. I mean, that's a massive innovation, something that we wouldn't have been able to do, uh, you know, ten years ago would have been almost undreamt of. So I think there's a lot happening, and this is happening right across. Um, uh, right across the civil service. The question is, how can we get better at being able to bring together those multidisciplinary teams to across the silos in order to uh, work on those innovations and then come up with the ideas and then, and then deliver them? And as I say, I mean, completely, you know, we, the permanent secretary, is not at all complacent on this, loads still to go, but we really want to learn from what has happened in those areas where under time pressure, 
some of the traditional things that have got in the way how we have managed to somehow you know, work around. And I think that's, that's something that we want to learn from. Mm. And uh, picking up lots of questions online and picking up on something Stephen said as well about um, uh, pay. Uh, how are permanent secretaries thinking about pay and um, uh, responding to some of the challenges around that? Well, look, I mean, I, probably all I should say is obviously it's an issue that we're very, you know, the, the, the cabinet secretary is head of the civil service and the permanent secretary are very seized of and, um, and focused on. I mean, we, we work for, we work for the public and what is happening economically in, uh, you know, in the country, in the global context means that we recognise the constraints. Mm. So obviously we want to do what we can for our people, but we also acknowledge this is an incredibly difficult time uh, for the whole country and that's really um, important. Thank you. Another round in the room uh, and I'll interleave with others online. So we'll go to uh, David first. Uh, and then I'll come this side of the room as well. So I feel I'm pointing in this direction. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask a very basic question. Uh, when I was a junior minister in government, I came to the view uh, that we were civil servants and ministers were being asked to run a, a really quite dysfunctional system. And the reason why it was dysfunctional was very simple, that there wasn't actually anyone running the system. And as a whole, organisations don't self-organise. And the reason for this uh, dysfunction was... Uh, we have a constitutional position which is that permanent secretaries report to ministers and ministers report uh, to parliament. And this means that the head of the civil service has no real authority over the permanent secretaries. And there's an issue both of accountability here and an ability to change the system and to be accountable for parliament. Uh, the Institute has now produced a report which highlights this problem and uh, says that the only way to deal with this is a new statutory position for the civil service in which the head of the civil service and the board has authority to run the system. And I want to know, I'd be very interested to know what members of the panel think of that proposal. Thank you, uh, David. Uh, uh, that was uh, Lord Sainsbury, who's the uh, uh, chair of the uh, IFG. It, li it links to a question from Vincenzo online, actually, uh, who talks about uh, not being enough transparent detail about how the civil service is going to deliver the um, uh, work that it does. So we'll come to that point, definitely. Uh, lady over there in the, by the fireplace. Hi, um, Sarah Kalkin, Local Government Chronicle. I just wondered if the panel thought civil servants, and I'm talking about the Whitehall civil servants, would benefit from spending more time in delivery organisations such as councils or the NHS uh, as part of their development. And just a second one, if I can be cheeky, does this new, um, the new sort of, um, architecture of local government, as it was described, of metro mayors mean that civil servants in Whitehall need to operate differently? Thank you. And one more, let's go back there. Thank you, uh, Simon Kay from the Think Tank Reform. Um, just a quick one following up on Antonia's last uh, few thoughts there. Um, I think it's very clear that failure hits differently when you're dealing with public money. I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an important point to make. But I wonder what the panel thinks about whether scale also makes failure a more of a challenging proposition and makes risk-taking, therefore, more of a challenging proposition too. So is there a case, perhaps a strong case, 
for decentralizing some of the big risk-taking functions that we currently concentrate in a quite monopolizing way at the heart of Whitehall? And is there a case for thinking about other sectors that might be more amenable to taking risks not with public money? Thank you. So accountability in the statute. And then, um, uh, sorry, I'm going to move to the panel because we're running short of time. Um, delivery organisations and uh, local government and um, uh, scale. Uh, Antonia, what do you make of our statute idea and uh, the accountability of civil servants? Um, so, I mean, I think like, we're completely clear what we are accountable for. And as you rightly say, we're accountable uh, to ministers for the delivery of the government's agenda, the, the elected government of the day. Um, but we also do work. I mean, the head of the civil service is responsible for the civil service. The cabinet secretary um, is the leader of the permanent secretaries. And we work incredibly closely together uh, in the context of the civil service code and the values to deliver. And we do work collectively really well in that, you know, across departments under the leadership of the cabinet secretary to ensure that we are joining up. I mean, you know, we obviously don't get everything right all the time, but I think we're we're clear on what our accountability is. I think the proposal is, I mean, would obviously change, would be a significant change in terms of the accountability um, for uh, the, the whole civil service and the top of the civil service. Um, I, you know, that's a, you know, I'm not going to comment on that, but the, um, from my point of view, as permanent secretaries, we're totally clear what we do, and we, our job is to work professionally and impartially um, to collectively to deliver uh, for ministers and for the government. And working with delivery organisations and local government. So, I mean, I want to broaden that out to more with the front line, you know, learning from the front line, absolutely. I mean, and, that, and that's what we do all the time. And there's different organisations. I mean, I mentioned, you know, 76,000 of my staff are, uh, work in prisons, work in courts, work in probation. I mean, talking to them, to the point, some of the points earlier made, you can't make policy in a vacuum. The iteration between policy and delivery is absolutely essential. It's a crucial part of what we call civil service reform. It's a big point in the declaration of government reform, how we are going to bring these together to learn all the time. And the mindset of learning, continuously learning and improving is I think really at the heart of that and learning from the, the colleagues who are actually delivering uh, for the citizen you know, in the public. We are very close to time, but last reflections on those points, Stephen first and then Manu. Uh, well, I mean, I would say obviously the civil service should have a board, partly because right, the, the thing that we're all, we've all been slightly blurring is this idea of well, who, who is actually the CEO in the yeah. Whitehall analogy. Uh, and if the answer is nobody, well, then you have an organization without a CEO. And, and in terms of these issues around pay, it's hard to sack pretty much anyone in a UK context unless they're an academic. Um, <laughs> then, um, and, uh, but what in other organizations makes people less resentful is that the, you know, their manager or their boss can, can basically go, well, I want to retain you so I can pay you more. Uh, they can make organizational decisions within their structure. No one in the civil service can do that. Minute, you know, the Secretary of State can't really do So unless you have someone to be a guiding mind, you don't have a guiding mind. Thank you, uh, Stephen. Uh, definitely more experience of delivery, I think, is good, because policy is highly prestigious, delivery less so, I think, in, in government. Um, and also making it easier for people from the outside to come in. Um, it, it, for some reason, it's quite difficult. I don't know why. Um, again, that's one of those low-hanging fruit that we should be able to make easier. But the porousness of the civil service and bringing in outside expertise, um, I think, is something straightforward. I, I mean, on, on the statute question, whether it, it works or not, I mean, I think 
I would like to really understand why some of these things haven't happened. Is it that permanent, instruction, uh, permanent secretaries are given instructions by the cabinet secretary and then just ignore them? Is that what happens? If that's the case, then maybe the IFG should do a report on, you know, why have these uh, policies not been implemented, mm. as opposed to the policies that we already already know are probably good ones to do. As indeed we are, and we will keep up the drumbeat on uh, all of this uh, all of this work. Um, we're over time, uh, so uh, uh, I'm going to wrap it up now. Um, the event live stream uh, for this uh, discussion will be available to watch on our website and YouTube in uh, 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 just a few hours or days, um, so do keep an eye out for that if you want to pick up on anything else. Um, if the charts whetted your appetite, our Whitehall Monitor launch is uh, on the 31st of January with a panel that includes Alex Chisholm, who's the um, Chief Operating Officer for the Civil Service, where these questions will uh, come up again. Um, uh, uh, we've also, we did a report recently on opening up the Civil Service. We had an event the other week with Pamela Dow, whose name has come up a few times on skills. So there's loads more material on all of this stuff uh, on our website. And there will be more to come. So uh, at final point, thank you to Grant Thornton for supporting this discussion and for the whole uh, day. Uh, thank you to the panel and thank you very much to the audience for brilliant questions.